0: Uh, if this is your first time with us, uh, let me just point out something really fast. There's a bunch of Bibles on a back table uh, in the very back of the room. As every Sunday that you're here at Stone Oak, we, we walk through the Bible and walk through the text. If you didn't bring yours this morning, or possibly you don't have one, feel free at any time to walk back there and grab one of those. And if you need one at the house, feel free to take it home. Uh, you don't even have to tell us that you stole one. It's okay. You can steal within church if you're taking one of those Bibles. We're, we're all right with that. Um, so if you need one, feel free to go back there and access those. We're in an interesting time of the year right now. We're, we're going through a season that we've titled as Advent, that the historical church calendar has titled as Advent. This is our second week now within the season of Advent. And this morning, we're going to talk through peace. What comes to mind whenever I say the word peace? It could be a number of different things. Peace is a common word even within this time, within this season. Many people might have peace and joy someplace within their house, or some people even have them as decorations outside of their house. Uh, It's a common word, though. Help me fulfill this. Help me finish this sentence, if you will. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." I'm unsure of what kind of household this is, but I guarantee you they have no children under the age of seven. There is, there is lack of peace typically whenever you add in children under the age of seven, suddenly the house is not so quiet and suddenly there are more mice as well. Uh, peace isn't just a common word in this time and in this season though. I would argue that peace is a universal language. Here's what I mean, every people, and every nation are trying to answer the exact same question. Is peace possible? I think that every group of people has a desire for peace. Everyone of us as individuals has a desire for peace. Everyone has a common understanding of what peace is. As I thought through peace, I tried to describe it. I tried to create a, a working definition, if you will, of the word peace. Have you ever tried to describe something like peace It's one of those those things where you say, oh, everybody knows what peace is, but to actually put it on a a piece of paper as the definition of here is what peace is, I found it difficult. I think it's easy to create a, a definition of examples of peace rather than a definition of words. Is peace simply the lack of war or strife? Is peace this kumbaya state? What's the opposite of peace? Maybe that will help us to create a definition. Is the opposite of peace unpeace or dispeace or non-peace? A bunch of made-up words that I've just created. Is the opposite of peace maybe fear? Is the opposite of peace maybe war, violence? Maybe it's misunderstanding, is the opposite of peace. Maybe it's freedom from disturbance, is the opposite of what peace is. If you're like me, then whenever you're trying to create a definition, it doesn't come easily. The first thing I usually do is Google it, obviously. So I Googled peace. What I found was very interesting. One of the very top hits whenever you Google peace is something called the Global Peace Index. The Global Peace Index. I found it absolutely fascinating. It shows the effects of social and political turmoil Spending on military and spending on peaceful efforts, homicide rates, criminals per capita, and internal and external conflicts. I love to look at data. I love to look at stats. If you enjoy them, get ready for some fun. If you don't, just hang on with me. Don't fall asleep, okay? I'm also a very analytical person. So for me to say that the world has become less peaceful, I need some statistics to back it up. And the Global Peace Index is really helpful. So here's what the Global Peace Index says. I'm going to read it to you so I don't misquote them. The 2017 Global Peace Index finds that the world became more peaceful in the last year. However, over the last decade, it, becomes, it has become significantly less peaceful. They find that there's been a decline in militarization over the past three decades. Globally, the, econ- the economic impact of violence on the economy is enormous. Current peace-building spending focused on building peace is well below the optimal level. They go on to say that 93 countries improved their peace while 68 deteriorated in peace. They also say there's an increase in what they title peace inequality with most countries having only a small increase of peace, while a handful of countries have had large deteriorations in peace. If you're looking for a vacation spot of 2018, here you go. These are the countries that were the most peaceful. The top of the list, Iceland. Iceland remains the most peaceful country, followed by New Zealand, Portugal, Austria, and Denmark. The bottom of the list begins with Syria, followed by Afghanistan, Iraq, South Sudan, and Yemen. study goes on to say, in relation to us as North America, the largest deterioration in the score occurred in North America. The score for North America deteriorated entirely as a result of the United States, found this funny, which more than offset a mild improvement in Canada. The U.S.'s score has been dragged down largely because of deterioration in seven indicators, the homicide rate, level of perceived criminality in society, and the intensity of organized internal conflict. The latter measure has deteriorated because of the increased levels of political polarization within the U.S. political system. This is the world... In the nation that we live in, we desire peace. But it seems that everywhere around us there is turmoil. Within the U.S., the lack of peace is no longer an over-there problem. It's no longer a Middle East problem. It's now entered into our own backyards. And begs us to answer the question of, is peace possible in our world? Is peace possible in our nation? Is peace possible within our city? Is it possible within our church? And is it possible within our families? We often miss the peace in the here and the now of our everyday lives. It's foolish to look at peace as an out-there problem. There's a lack of peace even within our own homes. Is peace possible? Peace in our finances? Peace in our schooling decisions for our children? Peace in our retirement plans? Peace in our sicknesses and in our ailments? peace in dealing with our aging parents? Is peace possible in these relationships? Is peace possible at all? As I said earlier, this isn't just a Christian question that we're trying to answer. This is a world question. It's not a question limited to a single religion, a single denomination, a single organization, a single political party, group, race, financial status, or location. I feel that we often look at peace as a small problem with a simple solution. If I had more money, then obviously I'd be at peace with my finances. If I could just move to that other location, then our family would have peace. If only, and you can fill in the blanks what it is for you, then you would have peace. The grass probably isn't as green on the other side as we would imagine or hope for it to be. Peace does not come with a higher paycheck or a change in zip code. I bet if I were to have a conversation with some of my friends on the other side of the world, they would look at my life as peace. They would look at us as the United States as peace. As it turns out, though, we all struggle with a lack of peace. It's a universal language that our entire world speaks. The desire for peace. The desire for peace isn't just common across our borders, though, and it's common across time as well. This isn't a new thing. The desire for peace actually goes back thousands of years. In fact, peace and the lack of peace goes back to the very beginning. Remember with me the scene in the Garden of Eden, the very beginning of our Bible, Genesis chapter 1. God has always and will always exist We see that the Trinity is there. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God then chooses to create. Out of nothing, he creates the world that we live in. There is light and there is darkness. There is land and there is sea. There is ground and there is sky. There are trees and there is grass. There are birds and there are fish. There is day and there is night. There is man and there is woman. God chooses to describe these things after he has created. and he chooses to simply call them good. And on that last day of creation, he changes the language slightly and says it is very good. God then rests. There is peace in the garden. There is peace between the vegetation and the earth. There is peace between the animals and man. There is peace between man and woman. And most importantly, there is peace between God and man. Peace is in abundance in the garden. Each week, there's a group of us that gather together to, to look forward to the next sermon. We, we call it just simply a preaching meeting that we do each Tuesday morning. And as we are looking forward to this sermon, discussing peace, somebody asked a question. If I could present an image that displayed Such beautiful peace. I unfortunately cannot. No matter the words I use to describe peace, it will most surely fail in comparison to what true peace looks like and feels like. Imagine a time or a moment where you've got just a glimpse of peace. Even that moment fails in comparison to the peace experienced there in the garden with God. This moment here of Genesis does not last very long, though. Something has happened. And if we look at our world today, you can see that something has gone wrong. We can look just one more chapter and see that peace has been broken. In the third chapter of Genesis, peace is broken. It's a chapter where sin enters into our narrative. The man and the woman choose to go against God and to eat here of the forbidden fruit. In doing so, peace has now been shattered. Peace between man and woman is now broken. Adam clearly demonstrates this when God confronts him. His first words to God in the midst of this sin are about the woman that God gave to him. He has begun the blame game. Husbands, if you'd like to maintain the peace that you currently have within your family, I do not suggest you follow after Adam. When things go wrong, you immediately blame your wife. Not a wise choice. If you look towards the next chapter, you see that time has not mended this wound. Death of a brother occurs. And peace just doesn't seem to fix itself. There's no longer peace between man. This isn't the only breaking of peace that we see because of sin here in the garden, though. There's no longer peace between man and vegetation as well. At the end of chapter 3, God tells Adam, "...in pain you shall eat of the ground." he's now going to have to work for the rest of his life to receive the fruits of the ground. This broken peace for us has become normal. It wasn't for Adam. Adam had experienced peace between man and the earth, and now that is now broken as well. To take it even one step further, there is peace broken internally. Before sin entered, man and woman here were naked in the garden. We see that one of the first things that occur when they eat of the fruit is shame. They both came to understand their nakedness, and they both then make coverings for themselves. The peace even internally inside of them has now been broken. Sin has permeated all. The largest chasm of broken peace, though, is what we find between man and his creator. The peace between man and God is now broken as well. No longer were they allowed to remain in the garden. No longer would they be found where the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. They were driven from the Garden of Eden. There's now no going back for them. Sin has entered between man and God. There's no way for them to reverse what has occurred. They, like all of us, are now enemies with God himself. But in the course of this chapter, there's broken peace scattered throughout. There's one line, however, of Genesis chapter 3 that I would love to draw your attention to. It's the 21st verse. Let me read it to you. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them in the midst of this broken peace, externally, internally, and with God, God still shows his love, his mercy, and his compassion for Adam and for his wife. He chooses to clothe them and cover their nakedness. God, in this moment, is pointing forward. He's cluing them in on this perfect plan that was established before they were even created. This plan begins to become known throughout our Old Testament. The plan was that a Messiah would come. Who would make all things right. The peace is still broken, but hope is coming. If we fast forward, we come to the time of the prophets. As Justin mentioned last week, these are individuals that God uses as his mouthpiece. In the book of Isaiah, one of these prophets, we get to read about this hope that is coming. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, read like this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called a Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Do you hear the hope within Isaiah? It is a hope of a future peace. The prince of peace is coming. Of this peace there will be no end. The Israelites had hope of this peace that it would restore all things back to the garden. They had hoped that this peace would be eternal. No longer would there be oppression. If you read the Old Testament, and even the verses right before, if you read chapter 8 of Isaiah before this is said, you can see why the Israelites are desiring for the prince of peace. There is an impending war. The Assyrians are coming. There was oppression. These are hurting people. They feel the weight of broken peace. Things are looking rather bleak for them. Their hope was for the coming Messiah. They were in this time of Advent. They are waiting with anticipation for the time that God would fulfill the promise of what he has said he will do and send the Messiah. There is no peace now, however, peace is coming. If you look a little bit further, we see within our text that peace has come. Peace came in a very unfamiliar way. Peace came through the child of the virgin. Peace came in the middle of the night. It came in a stable when there was no room. It came without pomp and without circumstance. It came without royalty. Peace came down. The birth of Christ is the foretold message of Isaiah. If we look then to Luke chapter 2, we get to see the beautiful narrative of the birth of Christ. I'll begin reading in Luke chapter 2 in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that, will, that there will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with, an, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Christ is here. Peace has been born. Surely, things now will go back to the garden. Surely, everything will be fixed and everything will be solved, and peace has, has, has come down. All of the waiting is now evidenced in the birth of this child. God has done exactly what he has promised. Everything on earth is going to return now. It doesn't go this way, though. Although Christ is peace, his life was not the peace that they expected to see. People didn't instantly recognize him as peace. In fact, the opposite occurred. They despised and rejected him. This peace was beaten and afflicted. The gospel of Mark chooses to say it like this. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, "Hail, king of the Jews." And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is our peace. Silent. The Prince of Peace is not causing everyone around him to see peace. There's violence. and In fact, it's directed at our peace. Christ is then led up the hill. He is placed upon the cross. And it is here that he takes his last breath. There's still no peace between man. Is this really the Messiah? Where is our promised peace? How then is Christ our peace? I believe Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says it very well. I choose to say it like this: Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We now have peace through Jesus Christ. We have peace between God and man. Christ is our atonement. Christ is our prince of peace. He has restored the peace between God and man through his sacrifice upon the cross. Sin entered the world and broke the peace. Through Adam, all mankind has been an enemy of God. Through the second Adam, no longer are we enemies. Peace has been restored. Ephesians says, we who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. When looking back at the garden, though, we saw that peace was broken in more than one way. Christ has come, and he has restored the peace between man and God. What about the peace that our world so much desires, though? What about the fighting that we see every day within the news? Where is peace in the midst of conflict? Why is there still no peace in my family? In the season of Advent, we're doing two things. We look back And we also look forward. We look back at the birth of Christ. We celebrate that God came down. We also look forward. We look forward in anticipation to the time when Christ will return. This period here is known as the already, but not yet. Peace has already come, but not yet. We, like the prophet Isaiah, are still waiting in anticipation for Christ to come, we're still waiting for peace to be restored between men. In the meantime, in our season of Advent and in our season of waiting, there is a mission. After the death of Christ comes his resurrection. He defeats sin and the grave, he sticks around for a little while, and then he ascends into heaven. Right before he goes up to heaven, though, there's an interesting event that occurs. If we look at Acts chapter 1, we see this wonderful story. Beginning Acts chapter 1, verse 6, I'll begin reading uh, through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, this is the disciples, three of them speaking to Jesus. When they had come together, they asked him, "'Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?' And he says to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold... Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Christ has just risen from the grave, and he has shown his disciples who he was. Look at my feet, look at my hands. They still have a question for him, though. Where is this peace? Where is this peace that we were promised and told about? They're wanting the kingdom of Israel restored. They were looking for the peace between men. You've done everything else that you said that you were going to do. What about the kingdom, though? Notice how Jesus answers this question. There's humor within here. He doesn't directly answer that question. What he does say, though, is very important. You don't need to worry about when I come back. It's pretty much what he's telling them. Don't worry about that. In the meantime, though, there is something you need to worry about, and that's the mission. That's the mission that I'm placing before you. I'll send a helper. The Holy Spirit is coming. He will assist you in this mission. Don't worry about when Israel is going to be restored. Worry about the mission I'm placing in front of you right now. What is this mission, then? What is he asking of these gentlemen, I would say, of us today to do? In Acts, it says to be witnesses. I love how 2 Corinthians chapter 5 puts this message that we are to proclaim. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul begins by pointing back to the first advent. He begins by pointing them back to the incarnation of God in Christ. You are no longer enemies of God. That person is now dead. Now you are a new creation. A creation that is at peace with God. How? How did this happen? It says in verse 18 of that, Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. If I could change the translation sl- slightly. Who through Christ gave us peace to himself. God sent Christ to reconcile us, to make peace between us and him. This is where peace begins. Peace on earth does not matter if there isn't first peace between man and the creator of earth. Is there peace between you and God right now? Not because of any action that you have done to earn your peace, but because God, in His infinite wisdom, has sent Christ to be our peace. As we approach Christmas, we're reminded of the birth of Christ. We're reminded of the one who gave His own life for ours to restore us back to the Father. This is where peace begins. It's the action of Christ upon the cross that starts peace. This is the place where Christianity differs from our world and even from other religions. Oftentimes, we're told that peace must first begin with us. It must first begin internally. You must seek inner peace. Once we know ourselves and then are at peace with ourselves, then we're able to have peace between man and ultimately peace with God. It must first begin internally, though. Christianity proclaims a much different message. Peace begins with the actions of Christ upon the cross, making peace, then, between God and us. Although peace begins here, it does not end here. Read with me the end of verse 18. It says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, who gave us the ministry of peace. We now have a mission. We now have a ministry of peace. We have been given peace to now be peace. Church, our job is not simply to harbor Peace, but to be and to proclaim peace. Be reconciled with God. Make peace with God. Then take up the ministry of reconciliation. We're living in this already, but not yet. We're living here in the second advent. Christ has come, and Christ is coming. If you have received peace, you have a ministry and a mission. How are you proclaiming peace? We began our time by looking at the global peace index. Some shocking statistics are in that study concerning peace, especially concerning North America and the United States with peace. Depending on how you look at those stats, it can either be a positive or a negative for the church. I suggest we look at those stats and see the massive and fruitful ground laid before us. There's a common language of peace. We don't have to work at all for people to understand peace. There is not a common solution to peace. Christian, you have a job to proclaim the only solution for peace between man and God, and that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross. The harvest is plentiful. As peace in the world declines, our job as the church becomes so much greater and so much urgent. Peace is not common. I urge you, be peace. Be an example of peace within your workplace. Be an example of peace within your friendships. Be an example of peace within your home. When disunity and dysfunction show up, proclaim peace. In the midst of all things, be peace. It must first begin with peace between God and with man. From there, we there have then have a ministry of being peace. There's an old hymn uh, that has a tremendous story the story goes that there is a gentleman uh, who has just recently moved to Chicago. Um, him and his family has four daughters or are in Chicago, and um, there's a, they have to then go back. They have to cross the Atlantic and go back uh, to England. So the gentleman books all of their tickets for himself, his wife, and their four young girls. Problem being, though, business comes up. And so he chooses then to send his family send his wife and his four daughters on, and he will then catch a later ship. So he does that. He stays back in Chicago and sends his wife and his four daughters along. He then gets a telegram. He gets a telegram from his wife uh, a number of weeks later. And the telegram simply has two words and two words only. It says, saved alone. What has happened is, as they are journeying, their boat actually sinks. Whenever their boat sinks, his four daughters pass away. His wife is the only one who makes it. She sends a telegram back that simply says, saved alone. Horatio then decides to make the journey across and be with his wife in her time of mourning and in his time of mourning. And as his ship is crossing the sea, about the place where he believes their ship went down, he writes a simple song. It is well. It is well with my soul. How? How can a man proclaim it is well? It is simple. Because peace has been earned between himself and God through the sacrifice of Christ, his external circumstances he knows are reliant upon God himself. Even in the midst of his trials, even in the midst of death of his four young daughters, he proclaims, It is well. Church, we began in the garden. We began in the beginning of our Bible. And I'd love to end our time at the end looking forward. Looking in the book of Revelation as we see the second coming of Christ. Specifically, Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, we see a glorious picture of what is the future. Let me read and just sit back and listen to the piece. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, Who was seated on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you. Father, as we began our time looking at our sin, Father, we thank you for the gospel. Father, we thank you for the truth of Christ. Father, we thank you for sending him to make peace. Father, we thank you for placing him upon that cross. Father, as his blood was broken, as his body was broken, Father, and his blood was spilled, Father, you have made a way. Father, we thank you for the restoration of us and you. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would take our job as peacemakers, Father, very seriously. Father, as we looked at the Global Peace Index, we see the, the large task and the huge mission in front of us. Father, we, we understand it is not easy. As we look towards Acts chapter 1, Father, you proclaim that there will be the Holy Spirit to assist us, Father. Father, I pray that we rely upon him. Father, as we have been granted peace to be peace, Lord, may it be done in the power of the Spirit. Father, in the season of Advent, Lord, where things are busy, it seems like Christmas is quickly approaching and the new year is almost here, Father. I pray, Lord, in these moments of busyness, Father, that we would pause and reflect on your peace. And Father, as our world continues to look, look for whatever it is that they believe will fulfill them, Father. I pray, Lord, that we as the church would be the bright and shining star. Father, I ask that you would use us as individuals and as a corporate body. Father, that we would be the example of peace. Father, that in this season, many will come to know the work of your Son upon the cross. Father, because of the simple lack of peace that they experience every single day. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for sending Christ. We thank you, Father, for his death. Father, we thank you for the reconciliation that is between you and us. Father, it is in his name that we pray. Amen.